This book has proved to be the most controversial book I've written. And why is that? <laughs> yes, that's, that's what I asked. <laughs> because my last book, Love Thy Body, was on issues like abortion and homosexuality, transgenderism. These are issues that are front burner topics. And most men just assumed, you know, a female author, she's going to be a male bashing feminist. And more progressive people assumed I was a reactionary, angry, defensive culture warrior. Welcome to the Danielle Hage podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Hage. Danielle is my mother-in-law and Nini to my three girls. She is a pastor, speaker, and founder of Dynamic Traits. She has over 40 years experience in family and marriage relationships. She's been married for 43 years to Steve Hage, who travels the world preaching the gospel, and together they pastor a church in Laguna Niguel, California. So today we're going to dive in on a conversation that Danielle had with Professor Nancy Piercy. She's a best-selling author and speaker. She's a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. She has written seven books, which are translated into 18 languages. And this new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, is by far her most controversial book yet. This conversation is so intriguing. And then we'll come back and we'll follow up afterwards just to talk about it and dive deeper a little more. So make sure you tune in today because you don't want to miss this interview with Professor Nancy Pearson. Okay, so hey everybody, I am so excited to be here today with Professor Nancy Piercy. She has wrote, written a best-selling book called The Toxic War on Masculinity. And um, I just, you, you've written lots of books and I've, I've gotten the, another one too. I haven't quite delved into it yet, but I want you to know, uh, Nancy, the way that I found you is I, on social media, I was accused of spreading toxic masculinity. And of course it came from a woman and I had never heard that term oh. and I had to Google it. I'm like, what is toxic masculinity? And I'm spreading it. I mean, because it's the exact opposite of what I think I teach and do. So I had to Google it and it led me as I started to research it, it led me to you. And, and I saw you on a podcast and then I heard you had a book. I ordered it immediately. I listened to it on Audible first and I was so taken in. I'm like, oh, this is exactly, exactly goes in hand in hand with the stuff that I've been teaching for the last 20 years. And then I had to read your book and I literally have highlighted the heck out of it. And I just finished a five part series at our church on Sunday mornings based off your book. <laughs> so I just wanted wow. you to know that. What yeah, history. It's, it's <laughs> excellent. Excellent. And I would encourage everybody to get this book. But anyway, so yes, I'm thrilled that you're here and I definitely have some questions for you. Um, First being, your book tells us, it says that Christian men are often accused of um, being oppressive toward women and even um, that it kind of inspires domestic violence and abuse from them because of what scripture says. So can you talk about that for a little bit? Absolutely. That is really the final reason I decided I was going to write this book is that I was paying attention to what some of the social scientists were saying about Christian men, and it was completely contrary to the media narrative. And 
and here's the backup background. So I I googled all the all the accusations I could find, right? Which was easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'll give you just one of them. So this was the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which came after the Me Too movement. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Hmm. So what happened is the social scientists were looking at this and saying, well, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these accusations, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. And in my book, I cite some dozen studies or so that all discovered that Christian men who are authentic about their faith, who go to church regularly, actually test out as the most loving husbands and fathers. They mm. interview the wives, by the way, they, they do interview the wives separately, which is important. Um, and so what they're saying is the wives report the highest level of happiness with their husband's expressions of love and affection. Evangelical fathers spend more time than any other fathers with their children, 3.5 hours per week more than secular men. Evangelical couples are the least likely to divorce, 30% less than secular couples. And the real surprise, they actually have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. And this mm. material is just not out there. I had to go digging in the academic literature to find this. And so I thought this has to get out there, both into the churches, because, of course, Christian men feel beaten down and demoralized by the message of toxic masculinity too. And then I'd like to see us bring it into the public arena to help debunk the secular yes. media me messages, because this is not uh, a pep talk from some like a religious leader, for example. This is solid empirical research. This is em empirically based, evidence-based findings that shows that Christianity really does have the power to reconcile the sexes, as I put yeah. it in the subtitle of my book. Yes. Well, and I loved how you, because I have even been guilty of saying, yeah, you know, Christians divorce as much as everybody else, because we're always hearing the statistics aren't any different between Christian couples and secular couples. And you debunked that. So talk to us about the nominal men. I had never even heard that term before. I thought that was excellent. <laughs> right. So, and by the way, that is the first pushback I always get is haven't we always heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture? In fact, in my research, I discovered that that is one of the most widely used statistics in by Christian leaders. But yeah. Yeah. what happened is the, um, the, the sci social scientists went back to the data and they made that crucial distinction that you just mentioned between men who are authentic in their Christian faith and attend church regularly versus nominals. And you're not the only one who hasn't heard that before. I always have to explain it when I teach it in my classes. Um, N-O-M is Latin for name. And so nominal means in name only. And so these are men who on a, on a survey like this might check the Baptist box, for example, but who actually attend church rarely, if at all. It's more of a family background, a cultural background. And these men test out shockingly different. They fit all the toxic stereotypes. Right. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness with the way the husbands treat them. They spend the least amount of time with their children. They have a higher divorce rate than secular men. 20%. That, that was 20%. unbelievable right there. Amazing. 
Exactly. Uh, 20% higher. I mean, yeah. the, wow. the numbers are right there. And right. then they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, even higher than secular men. And so this is why the numbers get so skewed. If you just do a, re a study on evangelicals, you know, umbrella, as an umbrella term, you're going to get men who are better than secular men and men that are worse than secular men. And that's why the numbers are so misleading. Yes, that makes so much sense. When I heard that, I love that. Because to me, I'm thinking, wouldn't the enemy love for people to believe that Christianity can't even keep uh, Christian couples together? That the Bible, you know, that it's not working. And so I thought this was so good. People need to know this, that Christian couples do not divorce at the same rate as secular couples. I just thought that was such good, good stuff. Um, okay, so tell us, where does this whole idea about toxic masculinity, where did it begin? Where does it come from? Well, most people suspect that maybe it comes out of second wave feminism, 1960s. But actually, you have to go much further back. You have to go back to the Industrial Revolution, because before that, men were working alongside their wives and children all day right, on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the cultural expectation on men focused much more on their caretaking role, right, that they had responsibility for their family. In fact, uh, here's an interesting historical fact. Um, this surprised me. The literature on child rearing in the colonial era was addressed to fathers. Right. Not to mothers. I mean, if you go to a bookstore today, right, they're all mostly addressed to Absolutely. mothers. Absolutely, yeah. But in the colonial era, it was thought that the father was the primary parent. Mm -hmm. and, and, they were, and they did, in fact, spend just as much time with their kids as mothers did because they're working together all day. Right. Um, and, and even the concept of authority had a very special meaning. You know, today, we, it has kind of a negative meaning, I think. For most people today, we tend to think authority is interpreted as, you know, I get my way, I get to do whatever I want. But back then, what it meant was, who has responsibility for the common good? It was a very defined meaning. In other words, I look out for what's good for me, you look out for what's good for you. But who looks out for the common good of the marriage, of the family, the church, civil society, whatever? And that's what authority was for. He, the person in authority was not supposed to look out for his own personal interest. You know, there was a strong cultural pressure. That, no, your job is to look out for the interest of the whole. So how did we lose all that? The Industrial Revolution took work out of the home. And of course, men had followed their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time in American history, men were not working alongside their family, people they mm -hmm. loved and had mm -hmm. a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And this is when you see the language change. People began to protest. They didn't like it. So they were protesting that men were losing that caretaking ethos of the colonial era, that they were becoming egocentric, self-centered, uh, look off for number one, get ahead at all costs. And even the language of idol, that they were making their career into an idol. You know, they, mm. they were getting all of their um, fulfillment from their career yeah, instead their of from their families. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and so you really have to go back to the 19th century and you wow. begin to see the length. It was the first time that negative language was used to describe the masculine character. And mm. so, of course, that does also give us some sense of the solution, because if the problem was that men were disconnected from their families, the solution is, you know, what are some ways we can reconnect right. husbands and fathers to a, a deep, intimate, close, strong relationship with their, with their families? Right. 
Right. Okay. And so talk to us, because I thought this was so good too, about the good manuscript and the real manuscript. What, yes. what are those scripts? <laughs> I haven't memorized now because <laughs> I keep talking about them. But tell us, tell yes. us how you came up with that. Where you got? Well, that. I'll give you some background that's, that's actually not okay. in the book, and that is that okay. this book has proved to be the most controversial book I've written. And why is that? <laughs> yes, that's, that's what I asked. <laughs> because my last book, Love Thy Body, was on issues like abortion and homosexuality, transgenderism. These are issues that are mm. front burner topics. Yes. But when I was writing this book, first of all, I, I taught the manuscript in classes and I led lots of reading groups. I like to get lots of feedback, you know, to rub off the rough edges. And when they told their family and friends about it, invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? You know, like, with that tone. Yeah. And by the way, the second question was and always, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity anyway? Yeah. And most men just assumed, you know, a female author, she's going to be a male bashing feminist. And more progressive people assumed I was a reactionary, angry, defensive culture warrior. <laughs> and so that's why I put this study right at the front of the book, because it kind of defuses all that. This was a study by a sociologist. He's not a Christian, um, but he get, gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with a very clever experiment where he'd ask young men two questions. First, he would say to them, what does it mean to be a good man? You know, if you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? And the sociologist said all around the globe, young men had no trouble answering that. They would immediately start saying things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, look out for the little guy, be a protector, be a provider, be responsible. And the sociologists would say, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, I don't know, it's just in the air we breathe. Huh. Or if they were in a Western country, they would mm. often say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Wow. wow. And then he would follow up with a second question, which was, what if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, oh, no, no, that's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, um, suck it up, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using their language. Yep. And so the sociologist concludes there seems to be these two competing scripts that men do inherently, innately know what it means to be the good man. Uh, as we would say, um, they're made in God's image. Right. And they do right. sense what it means to be a good man. They do aspire to be yeah. the good man. But they're feeling cultural pressure in most cultures to be the real man, quote unquote, right. which does include the traits we might consider more toxic, at least if disconnected from a moral vision, they can slide into entitlement, control, dominance, and so on. And so this gives us a much better way to approach these issues. Because most men don't respond very well to being called toxic. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Nobody would. And no. so what we can do is can we tap into that innate, inherent knowledge of what it means to be the good man? Tap into that aspiration. And, right. and that gives us a much more positive way to approach these issues. Yeah. Well, and I'm saying, too, on, on my social media, the pushback from women when another woman is applauding or promoting men, which I do that a lot. And, and I'm trying to show women, if you just understand how men are designed, you don't have to take everything they do so personally. And the men, the comments I'm getting from men are like, yes, 
Exactly, 100%. And the women, oh, not so much. They are pushing back. And they're the ones that are saying that, th that men are toxic or that masculinity is toxic. And I'm like, some is, but not all. <laughs> and there's some very healthy masculinity out there. Um, okay, so you were talking about what's the solution? You know, how do we go from toxic masculinity to man-hating? You know, what's the solution for men? Well, I have two solutions. One is we really do need to understand how the secular script for masculinity arose, that real man script, right? Yeah. Because otherwise, even Christian men can absorb it. Yes. I just heard from a former graduate student of mine who teaches high school now. And she said, all of my male students are into Andrew Tate, right? So Andrew Tate's the uh, the paradigm of the masculinity as fast cars, fast money, fast women. And he's become enormously popular. Yes. Uh, and she said, you know, my students are even using quotes from Andrew Tate in their yearbook. Hmm. And she teaches at a classical Christian school. Wow. So I thought, okay, we need to be even talking to our Christian young men about this. Yeah. So how do how did it develop? You know, I go through several stages, but to help to help really crystallize the secular definition, I would like to focus on Darwinism. I have a whole chapter on the impact of Darwinism. And most people don't expect that because they think yeah. that's about science, right? right. Genes genes and fossils. But right. Darwinism had an incredibly strong influence on secular views of masculinity. So what Darwinian writers said is that the men who came out on top in the struggle for survival would be the men who were rugged, ruthless, brutal, right. savage, barbarian, and sexually predatory. And mm -hmm. so the message to men was to recover your true authentic identity. You need to get back in touch with, you know, your animal nature, the beast within uh -huh, is how they uh -huh. like to say it. And so while Christianity had urged men to live up to the image of God in them, Darwinian thinkers were saying, no, no, you need to live down to the animal nature. That's your true authentic self. Hmm. And by the way, Darwin also did himself argue that women were intellectually inferior to, to men. So he hmm. bears some responsibility for that, too, yeah. if that's yeah. part of toxic masculinity. But it's come back. So in Darwin's day, it was called social Darwinism. Today, it's come back and it's called evolutionary psychology. The idea being, if your body evolved, then so did your mind and your emotional patterns, you know, it's all explained by evolution. And so I'll give you, well, the first example is a best-selling book, best-selling, so it's had a huge impact, called The Moral Animal. And the author says, the human male is a possessive, oppressive flesh obsessed pig wow giving him a book on how to have a successful marriage is like giving vikings a book on how not to pillage <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. i'm like okay though so this is the Dream. message <laughs> and and there's another one i i quote two in particular this is also very colorful um it's called men in marriage by george gilder and it it's an older book but it was just reissued and he, too, says, you know, he, too, is an evolutionary psychologist, and he says uh, men are sexually predatory, violent, irresponsible. Their deepest desire, the deepest longing is to jump on their motorbike and ride off into the sunset, you know, leave their wife and kids behind, <laughs> be, alone, be a lone ranger. <laughs> so on the one hand, you know, when our young men are 
are in fact getting drawn into the secular script, we need to help them to have a critical grid, right? That's the yeah. first step. They yeah. need to have a critical grid so that they're not drawn in uh, by the secular view. You know, that we have a strong enough message of biblical manhood that they can think critically about the right. secular messages. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And who who is teaching the men? Who's mentoring these young guys? You know, they hopefully, and especially the Christian young men that are being raised by Christian dads, hopefully those dads are being role models for them and teaching them ab about the Bible and how to be transformed into his likeness and get away from that real manuscript into that good manuscript. I loved those two scripts. So I thought that was so telling on where, where men are at in this, in our culture these days. And I thought it was so good too, um, at the end of your book, talking about how, yes, how to, uh, that men, fathers need to get back in touch with their kids, with their families. And it's hard because like, I think you had said, you know, you can't work all day, get home at six o'clock tonight, in the evening and put the beds, the kids to bed at 7.30. An hour and a half isn't going to be enough to get that connection going. So what do they do? How can they, you know, the guys have jobs. I mean, what? what's yeah, the solution yeah. there? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, I, I also address um, that fathers, you know, are ridiculed and mocked in the media yeah. today. You know, I mean, it does undercut yes, immense right. yes. motivation to want to become a father if right. that if the fathering role is is made fun of you know the doofus dad the you know the yes. bumbling idiot dad and so and, and true. that and that too, we all know that and but we what we don't know is where it started from and yeah. it also came from the industrial revolution because as, as soon as men started being gone all day from the home they began to be out of touch with their children right compared to what they had been. They began to be, you know, they didn't know the family dynamics. They were not in touch with their children's feelings and thoughts. And so already in the 19th century, you see this. The literature of the day starts to say, you know, our fathers are no longer really integrated into the family. They're becoming yeah. su superfluous. They're becoming irrelevant and right. incompetent. So even the incompetent father was started in the 19th century. And so you can't write a book like this without some solutions. So I do have right. a whole chapter. <laughs> right. I, I do have a whole chapter on, you know, can yes. we flex the workplace some? Yeah. And fortunately, the job has gotten easier since the pandemic because That's right. a lot yeah. of fathers are saying, hey, I actually liked being home. The New York Times just recently had an article. So it's recent. So it's not actually in the book. But the New York Times of all places had an article titled, during the pandemic, fathers got closer to their children and they don't want to lose that. Right. And yeah. so it did help people see that maybe maybe there are ways that we can tweak the workplace, have a hybrid situation, for example, work two days from home or leave home. I had a graduate student who left work just early two days a week to uh, coach his son's soccer and, and basketball team. And, and we also have to help business world, the corporate world realized that this works, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So I have quotes from from CEOs saying things like, we were always afraid to allow for remote work because of course we thought people would slough off. Right. The pandemic has completely exploded that fear. And I quote another CEO who says, when you give parents the time to be better parents, 
they do make better workers. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. not a, it's a win-win situation. Yes. So, you know, you can you can take these quotes to your boss. <laughs> right. Um, when when you're negotiating, right. you know, for for, for some time mm-hmm. at home. Um and and I'm I'm careful to say not every job can be done at home because that's another right. pushback I get. But aspects of most jobs. We have a friend who runs an auto repair shop. Okay, you're not going to bring your cars home into your living room. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> but he can bring his paperwork home. And he, right. can sit at, he can sit around at the kitchen table while his kids sit with him doing their homework, answering their questions, discussing what they're learning. Yeah. So there's aspects of almost every job that can be done at home. And, right. and so I'd like to I'd like to encourage fathers, you know, to think more crea- creatively about you know, don't just yes. give in to the the secular industrial work style. Right. You know, well, and I know just, when when my children were small, my husband traveled a lot, and he mm-hmm. at one point for ten years in a row he traveled forty nine weekends out of the year for ten years straight. And so I was always concerned, you know, what's more important, quality or quantity time with the kids? And then I would send them with dad, you know, on trips he could take them because he would, he was a minister and he was a very sought out speaker. And so there were certain places that he could take them and one by one so that he could nurture that quality, you know, time with the kids. And then I think too, for men, you know, on the weekends, maybe you don't have a lot of time with your kids, but if you make the time that you have quality, where they have your full undivided attention and you're playing with them, you're hanging with them, whatever age they are doing the things that kids enjoy doing. And you as a father, just being involved and being a part, I think is huge, huge for men. Yes, you know, I'm not averse to using um, self-interest as a motivator. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so right. I have a, a section in the book on what on, on what men gain when they become fathers. Yes. You know, yes. To sort of counter the the media narrative that you know fatherhood is something not very respectable. No, when fa- men become fathers, psychologists tell us that there is a there are neurons in the brain that actually get activated when you huh. become a father. They call it the dad brain, <laughs> the dad That's brain. Right. And it, it does not get activated unless you become a father, which means huh. becoming a father literally instigates brain growth. And not, wow. not only that, but um, we've always known that mothers, when they give birth, uh, experience a rise in oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone. You yes. know, she's, got, she's getting a little biochemical boost to bond with this helpless infant. Right. Um, it turns out that men also, fathers have an oxytocin boost. And that was not known until recently. It's, hmm. uh, it's stimulated by tactile sense. And so the father has to be actually holding, cuddling, playing with his child, and then the oxytocin will rise. Yes. And then the most recent finding, so this was the, an anthropologist who wrote a book called The Life of Dad. And she discovered that the oxytocin in men is rising all during his wife's pregnancy. Huh. So all through nine months, apparently no, nobody ever thought of testing a man's blood during his <laughs> wife's pregnancy. Right. <laughs> right. But when they did, they found out. I mean, I think this really shows God's design, that God has designed men to be, they are being biochemically primed to be involved, engaged, loving fathers. So, I so love that. I love benefit. that. Oh my gosh! Sometimes it's easier to grasp when you have a, a, a quote that really crystallizes things. So let me give you one. This is uh, 
I call him my go-to sociologist because he's the one I relied on the most. He did the largest study of okay. evangelical men. And so, and to tell you something of his stature, you know, he's considered one of America's best marriage sociologists. Um, and he gets he gets published in places like the New York Times. Wow. So this is a this is an actual quote from the New York Times in which he said the the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Of course, they're, they're focusing on the wives because the idea is that any notion of male headship in the home turns men into these overbearing, oppressive patriarchs. Right. And so they right. they look at, you know, does it? You know, they ask yeah. the wives. Yeah. So, so he says in the New York Times, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of women who hold conservative gender values and attend church regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. And I thought, really? Nobody knows this. And then he, this, this is actually my favorite part of the quote. Then he turns to his academic colleagues, right? Sociologists are mostly secular. It's a very secularized field. Okay. And so he turns to them and says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices <laughs> against religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Evangelical Protestant married men with children are the most engaged husbands and the most loving fathers. Wow. And so these are quotes that we just, we should memorize. Yeah. And the and, data, they, they've done the research. The data is proving that, which I thought was so amazing. And you also brought up um, psychologist John Gottman, and I've read a lot of his stuff. And he's, he said, and this, I had to say, this surprised me. Um, I hadn't seen this before your book, because I, ha I have put probably a lot of the responsibility on women in marriage, because I sometimes think that women are the problem <laughs> a lot. But he says in his findings that men have the power to make or break the relationship, the marital relationship, that they have the, the responsibility to, to fix what's wrong, basically. And I have to admit, I was taken back by that. I said, really? He, he has seen that with all the couples he's worked with. He's brought it back to the men, and which, and like you said, psychology is putting the responsibility right where God puts it on the man, the head of the home. And I thought, you know what? If the data says it, if the data proves it, got to go. Well, with it. <laughs> to, tell you, to tell you who John Gottman is and why we should take his yes. data seriously, um, so he was, he was a mathematician before he became a psychologist. Oh, and so he does that. very this very quantifiable research. Uh, he brings couples into uh, like a bed and breakfast, which is really a lab, and wires them up, tests yes. their blood, uh, their heart rate, their breathing rate, their stress hormones, their, their sweat rate, and um, gestures. They've coded the gestures, everything from, you know, like rolling your eyes in disgust. Um, and also coding their language, you know, everything from placating to put, put to put downs, and they feed all of this into a computer. And he's be become famous because he's been able to predict with ninety three point six accuracy yes. percent accuracy ninety three point six percent accuracy which couples will divorce, and even how That's long amazing. it will take. That you know? I, yes, I thought that was so amazing. <laughs> you know, this, unbelievable. This, 
this couple's going to last seven years. This right. this couple's going to last fifteen years. Right. Anyway, that's why he's famous because he's. Yes. That's how uh, how acute his uh, studies have been. And then you're right. T- to my great surprise, he does turn around. And in several of his books, I'm sure you've read several of them. He's yes. written a lot. And in several of his books, he comes back to this theme that it's men who make or break the relationship. Yeah. Um, and and here's why. Because women usually work harder at the mm. relationship. Yes, Just, right. And numerically speaking, who go, who reads the books on marriage? Women. You know, who reads articles on marriage? Women. Who yep. seeks out psych- psychological counsel or pastoral counsel on their marriage? Women. And so he says it. whether the marriage works depends largely on whether the man responds. You know, right. is he going to respond in kind? Right. And unfortunately, he does say 86% of men do not. Yeah. Yeah. American men, eighty-six uh, percent of men do not respond in kind. They do not respect their wives. Or his words are: they do not accept influence from yes. their wives. Right. By which he yeah. means, you know, he doesn't take their thoughts and concerns into account. He doesn't really take them into account in his decision making. And and he's got another number: <laughs> when husbands do not involve their wives in the decision making, their marriages are eighty-one percent more likely to break up. Yep. Either in divorce, yep. Either in divorce or long-term unhappiness. Right. Well, you know, I I was asking in my church. I go, how many of you men have ever read a book on relationships or marriage? I mean, nobody, nobody. I have a bookshelf. There's a hundred books up there. I've read all of them. My husband, not one of them. But I am blessed enough that when I find good stuff, I'll read it to him, especially when we're on airplanes, and he'll listen. <laughs> And he takes it in, you know, and so thank God I have a man that that will respond. And but I know for men, you know, men don't go to counseling. It's way too vulnerable for a man to go and, you know, and open up to somebody else. And especially if their wives are telling on them, <laughs> right? They don't want to set themselves up for that. But yeah, so yeah, I, well, I that, believe that. that. That's why that's why you do want to have a separate counseling if there's any form of abuse. Yeah, right? uh, absolutely. Um, beca- because nominal Christian men test out as the having the highest level of abuse and domestic violence. Yeah. I did have to devote some time to that. The last two chapters yes. of the book deal with that. Yes. And so uh, it, it does, you know, I, I pulled together from Christian and secular counsels, counselors and therapists and theologians, um, mm. what, what are the best ways for the church to respond? And one of the things they said is, if there's any form of abuse, do not bring both husband and wife into the right. counseling session together because the wife probably won't disclose. Right. And if she does, yeah. she'll be punished when she She's gets home. Be in trouble. Right. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So something else, Nancy, that so surprised me and my husband, as I was telling him about this in your research, it made me so angry. I mean, I could feel my blood pressure going up when I was reading it is how many churches and ministers will tell the wife in an abusive relationship, just be more loving, quit antagonizing him, um, just pray. I just couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. I'm like, no, because we're pastors. I would never, never, I don't care what the wife has done. No man has a right to hurt her physically. I don't care what she's done. And I mean, I, in my church, I'm like, God cares more about the individual Yes, he hates marriage, and we don't advocate divorce, but he cares more about your mental and physical state than he does the marriage. Like, you, if you are in an abusive relationship, you do not have to be the good little Christian wife 
and take that. No way. That is not what the word of God is saying. Men are to love their wives. Yes, wives are to respect their men and and submit to their men. And women will have no problem submitting to a man that they feel safe with, that they trust, that loves them the way the Bible tells them to love them and treats them like the gift they are. It's not going to be a problem ever. <laughs> so. Yes. Well, yeah. I... I um, I think I'm probably older than you, so I remember those books, yeah. <laughs> and 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 I think some of them still exist. The books that put all the uh, responsibility on the woman. On the woman, and, yeah. and you're right. If you would just submit more, love more oh. unconditionally, f- forgive more, right? Make his favorite foods, have sex more, <laughs> yeah. Uh, lose yeah. lose weight so you look better. Right. All the emphasis was put on women, and fortunately, yeah. there's been a shift. I wrote this book at the right time because there's been a shift in Christian counselors, therapists, theologians, starting to say, no, that's not, that doesn't work. It's not human nature. We Good. all know that that's not how you deal with a bully. You know, somebody's no. actually willing to hurt to get his way. Right. You, right. We know that doesn't work like with a playground bully. You don't acquiesce. You don't try to right. placate. Or right. in international affairs with a belligerent nation. <laughs> you, yeah. you don't try to placate them. That doesn't work. They think it worse. They think, oh, well, she's accepting this behavior, so they right. get worse. No, and so yeah. fortunately, now you're starting to see all the advice is focusing on what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Yes. Matthew 18 says, if there's actual sin involved, you know, hurting some another person, then the solution is to confront the sin. Right. And if they don't listen to you, you bring a few more witnesses in. Right. And if they don't listen to them, you take it to the whole church. And if they don't yes. listen to the church, it might be time for church discipline. So fortunately, the message is starting to change and people are starting to empower wives to stand up to what when there is genuine abuse. Yes, I agree. I know that we do. Well, we are out of time. But Nancy, I, I can't tell you how much I admire you. I admire your work. I think you are so brave and so intelligent. And thank you. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to talk to you in person or, you know, virtually, but still in person. And I so appreciate you taking the time for my podcast. And um, and I'm praying for you. God bless you. And just thanks so much for being here and doing well, what thank you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I really enjoyed meeting you and hearing your background in your ministry. That's very yeah. encouraging. Oh, good, good, good. Okay, well, thank you and goodbye for now. <laughs> Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, Tune in next week where Danielle and I are going to dive in even deeper and talk about all the statistics and all the academics uh, that Professor Nancy brought to the podcast. And we're just going to talk about it even more as it relates to us as women, as you as men. And if you liked today's episode, make sure you subscribe, like, share with a friend, comment, and leave questions down below. And make sure you follow Danielle on Instagram and Facebook.